Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Does anyone here know what day of the church year this is supposed to be? And if you were in Bible class, you already know. It's not actually Pentecost. If you count the days, which is Pente means 50, so 50 days from Easter would have put us at Pentecost last Sunday. However, we had some other things going on, which were definitely filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I decided that I would move Pentecost. Don't you wish you had the power to move Pentecost? Or maybe you don't. If you were so anticipating Pentecost to the point that you knew that your comfort and eternal salvation depended on it, would you be ready to move it seven days? From the time that the disciples saw Jesus ascend into heaven to the time of Pentecost was ten days. They had to wait. Jesus tells his disciples, And while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what are you waiting for? What are those moments and experiences in your life where God tells you, you need to wait. Where you're asking for God to answer. Where you're asking for the Holy Spirit to give you something that you don't have. And God tells you to wait. Maybe it seems like God didn't even show up at all. Waiting for the Holy Spirit is more than just doing nothing. And today we'll look at three things that the Holy Spirit teaches us as we wait. Waiting for the Holy Spirit merges us into our, merges our expectation into God's expectation. Waiting for the Holy Spirit moves us into prayer. And waiting for the Holy Spirit draws us together. May the Lord bless us. As we look at Acts chapter 1, it continues on at verse 6. The disciples had come together and they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not up to you. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We sometimes say, I wish I had patience. Anybody here wish they had more patience? We almost say it like we think it's just not possible. Or if it is possible, it's going to come by some magical package in the mail. We get to go out and open up. And there in the mailbox is a box of patience. Finally, at last, it's come. I've been waiting for that package my whole life. As we wait on things, we find that instead of getting that package in the mail magically, other things seem to show up suddenly. Anger. Disappointment. Worry. 
When we wait, we often worry. I was texting someone recently about a doctor's appointment they needed to go to, and as they were actually in the waiting room, I got the text back, waiting. There's a reason they call it patients when we sit in the doctor's office and they call us patients. It's not only waiting for the check-in, but we know that waiting in the doctor's office can bring all sorts of emotions. We're not just waiting to get in, but we're waiting to find out what he's going to say. What kind of doom and gloom he might bring our way. Do we even expect good news? And so we worry. Another thing we do when we're waiting is we get angry. We get angry because we might be waiting for someone to follow through on something they said they were going to do. Let's say we sent out a text message and we're waiting for someone to respond. They were supposed to confirm that they did the thing we asked them to do. Everything's going to be okay. And instead of a response, yes, I took care of it, we get nothing. We get silence. How does that make you feel? And what do you do while you're waiting for that response? You see, in both of these cases, whether it's worrying or anger, both things happen to us because our expectations are not lining up with God's expectations. See, we've got our own expectations for how things should turn out, how life should go, how people should act, and what we deserve. We expect the other person to respond and do what we ask them to do. We're depending on them. Or maybe we get to the point in our lives where we don't depend on anyone. We don't trust anyone anymore because we don't like to wait. We don't like the uncertainty of that. So we control things. We control things we're worried about. We control things we're angry about. We control people, places, timing. The disciples say to the Lord, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They've got expectations that now that Jesus has completed his work, he's died for their salvation, he's been raised from the dead, and he's been exalted to God's right hand, of course the time would come for Israel to have its place again, to bring back the kingdom that David and Solomon once had, which really, by the way, wasn't that great to begin with to bring back the glory of Israel, to drive out the Romans who are consistently plaguing and persecuting them, will God restore the kingdom to Israel? And instead of Jesus saying, yep, that's what's coming next, uh, he doesn't answer their question. He says, it's not for you to know. He tells them to wait. You see, Jesus has other things in mind than what the disciples. His expectations are different than their expectations. And what he wants to do is teach them to merge their expectations into his expectations. So that our hearts are aligned with God's heart. And to begin with, we're not. Jesus has to bring us from that place of control or anger or worry to where our expectations line up with God. Because Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem and I will send you the promise 
of the Father. A promise means expectation. If God promised something to you, could you expect it to come true? God wants us to look to his promises, look to his track record. The reason we don't want to depend on that person who doesn't text us back is because of the track record. We know we can't depend on them. We might not get an answer. We might get something that's more confusing than what we began with. What is your track record? How dependable are you for other people? God wants us to go back to his track record. When you go back to the Old Testament, you find the track record repeats a pattern again and again and again of God's blessing, a struggle and a weight, and God's redemptive rescue. We saw it began all the way back in Genesis where the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Why? Because he was going to put into motion all of God's goodness. Light, driving out darkness, ordering all the days of creation, bringing life into Adam's lungs, creating the Garden of Eden and putting everything in place. The Spirit of God had blessed them and set everything in place until sin entered the world. And sin unraveled all of that beauty and goodness. And then there was corruption. And it built, and it was like a snowball effect all the way up to the time of Noah and the flood, where it became so bad that God's Spirit said, I can't live with these people anymore. And he counted down the days to where the flood was going to cleanse the earth. Noah knew the time was coming, and there was a time for Noah of waiting. Waiting that flood, anticipating what was his expectations, what were God's promises, until God wiped out the earth and Noah had to depend on God completely for those 40 days and 40 nights until he came out into a new world. Well, God blessed the new world again and he raised up fruit and he raised up animals and he raised up families and he blessed the world again. But what happened? The people of Israel went off to Egypt and after a while they forgot about God and they were driven into slavery. And there they were in Egypt in slavery for 400 years a time of extreme waiting until they finally cried out to the Lord and he answered them and he sent Moses a redeeming rescue. And the pattern goes on again and again. He brought them through the wilderness, a time of waiting till a time of restoration. And the kingdom of David was established and built up and it was glorious. But did that kingdom last? No. The kings brought in idols. They forgot about the Lord. They rebelled against the Lord. And so he drove them into exile, took them away from their land, took away their temple, took away their homes. And for 70 years, they had to wait again. When Jesus comes, he comes to a people who are waiting, a people like Simeon, who's waiting for the comfort of the Lord, finally, for the Lord to restore and redeem Israel. And Jesus had to wait. Think of all the times Jesus had to wait. In the wilderness, 
in those nights of prayer, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had to merge his expectations from a human standpoint to a divine place, to know that God the Father was going to be good, he was going to keep his promises. And so by the time of Pentecost had come, Jesus had proven God kept his promise again to raise up his son and to deliver us from all sin and death. Could the disciples now learn to wait? In James chapter 4, it warns us about waiting on our own terms. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. We would like to think we know what's coming. We have all these assumptions about our lives, how long we're going to live, what our lives are going to be like and we're going to accomplish, but we don't really know. And every one of those assumptions can become in us an idol where we th- begin to shape our lives as if we are God, moving Pentecost around to when it's convenient for us. Instead, God says, forget about tomorrow, trust in me today, and if it is God's will, then we will do this or that. If it is God's will, we'll live a long life. If it is God's will, we will retire. If it is God's will, we will be healthy. But at times when things don't work out like that, we know that God is teaching us an even greater lesson. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. So as those times come upon us, instead of taking out our phone and scrolling through that text message, which just makes us more angry to begin with, we should take out our phone and open the Bible app. Because the second point is that waiting for the Holy Spirit moves us into prayer. You see, there's two ways of asking this question I'm asking today. I could say, what are you waiting for? And you could tell me what you're waiting for. Or I could say, what are you waiting for? Now with the second version, we know we're really telling you to do something. What are you waiting for? It's all right in front of you. You've got everything you need. What are you waiting for? Stop waiting. And there is a place for spiritual discipline, which teaches us that waiting is not just doing nothing. After Jesus had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Do you understand why these men disguised, probably angels, said this? Why are you looking up into heaven? Where does God want our eyesight to be? Does, it, does he want us to be always like this? Doing nothing and just wasting our time away because nothing seems to be working out quickly enough for the way that we want it to. He told them to wait, but he told them to get busy. Stop, stop dreaming about the skies. Jesus is going to be found right down here on earth. Because patience doesn't come in a package in the mail. It comes to us in a much more special way. It comes to us as we are active. Patience, waiting, it's an activity. What's the very next thing that the disciples do? It says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord and were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It says there were about 120 in all of these disciples who were gathered. And what are they doing? They're praying. Sometimes we say to people, wait on the Lord, and it's almost like a cliche throwaway. Uh, do we really know what that means, to wait on the Lord? And so the Bible is saying that waiting on the Lord is doing something. It's active. It's not pulling out our phone to look at Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. You know, your phone is talking to you more than you're talking to your phone. All around us, the world is talking to us. And we're talking to ourselves. And when we start talking to ourselves and the world's talking to us, we start telling ourselves all sorts of things that we don't really believe. We tell ourselves lies. We tell ourselves excuses. We tell ourselves things that God has never said. Instead, I remember a book I was reading by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression. And in it, he says, we need to stop letting ourselves... We need to talk to ourselves and stop letting ourselves talk to us. Meaning you've got to tell yourself the promises of God. Because otherwise you're just going to keep getting fed with all this other stuff. Tell yourself in your prayer time, in the Psalms, reading the scriptures, tell yourself who God is, what he's done. Spend your time counting blessings. I was visiting Miss Dolly this last week. You guys know Miss Hallman. And I was asking her this question about waiting, and I asked her, Miss Dolly, are you good at waiting? And she just looked back at me without a moment's notice and said, Well, that's all I have to do. 
You know, when that's all you have to do, you, you get pretty good at it. In fact, in front of her, she got so good at it that she had these piles of books all around her. And I was looking through these books all around her. There's a book about praying with Jesus. There's a book about Christian doctrine. There's some bulletins. She keeps them piled up all around her, and she looks through them again and again. Because waiting is an activity where the Spirit can still use us, and our prayers still make a difference, even if we can't get out of our house. The fruits of the Spirit come to us as we pray and look to the Lord. Patience, trust, goodness. All of that is a test. And each test we go through is meant to refine us. And it's those moments where I'm visiting somebody like Miss Dolly where I remember even when you're waiting and you can't leave your house, you're not alone. I know that other people have gone to visit her. You know, you're never alone. And Christians should never be alone. If you had to go to a difficult doctor's appointment and you knew the results were going to be of a very uh, troubling test that you took, would you want to be in that appointment alone? You shouldn't be alone, first of all, because you're probably not going to hear everything the doctor's saying. You're probably going to be more consumed by what's swirling around in your head that you need somebody next to you who can hear what the doctor's saying and ask the right questions, who can help you process it and later on come back and say, well, did you know he said this or this is the next step? <coughs> Finally, the day of Pentecost had come and they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The third thing that waiting on the Spirit does is it draws us together. We don't want to be sitting through these times alone. And the disciples were not alone. They were with one accord. If you think about that, what that means, one accord, it means that we're not divided. We're not in little groups and cliques. We're not thinking in terms of, well, I'll pray with that person, but that person I would never pray with. We are one accord. We are together. Jesus draws us together in his spirit so that we're never waiting alone. And when discord comes into our midst, when arguments or hurt feelings or disagreements seem to fester and brew in our lives, it hinders the spirit. The spirit's grieved by that. It truly troubles God. And we need to do whatever we can in prayer and seeking each other in love so that these times of waiting are not times where we're alone, but it's strengthening us together. That's why we pray for people in our service. That's why we make announcement about people's health condition or people's requests. And those requests can be almost anything that you want us to pray for that we could share together that you're waiting for. But even if you have something in your life that you feel you can't share, something that you've kept to yourself 
and you're afraid that if you told somebody it'd either be embarrassing or it just you're just the type of person to keep it to yourself you're still not alone the spirit is the spirit of jesus and the reason he promises his spirit to the church is so that when he's dwelling in heaven in the unseen realm where we can't see exactly what he's doing in our hearts, he's always with us. He knows what you're going through. He knows the right timing. And he knows the best outcome. Some of you might be familiar with the pastor Tim Keller. Uh, He's written a lot of books, He was a pastor up in New York City, and he passed away this last day, this uh, last week on May 19th. He's well known in some circles. He's a leader in the Presbyterian Church, very influential on training pastors. And he started and co-founded an organization called the Gospel Coalition, which has a website and a lot of great resources on the gospel and Bible teaching. On May 19th, he died of pancreatic cancer. And I do want to take this moment to clarify that Tony Fry did not have pancreatic cancer. He had prostate cancer. And I've learned there's a big difference between those two. Um, So you can be, uh, obviously, any type of cancer is something to be concerned about. But unlike uh, prostate cancer with Tony, pancreatic cancer can spread, and it's, it's very deadly. Uh, it can spread very fast. And so he had the stage four diagnosis, Tim Keller, uh, three years ago. He was 69 years old. So for three years, this pastor had to wait on the Lord. And he said during that time, he learned to pray in a way that he had never learned to pray before. And he said he would never want to go back to the way he prayed before. He had to wait on the Lord. And in one of his last interviews before he died, he quoted Job. And this quote from Job, it says, God knoweth. He liked to read from the King James Version. God knoweth. Here's a quote from his... uh, last announcement he says do you pray for healing i pray at least twice a day for complete healing even though my doctor told me there is no cure god can do it or he doesn't have to i mean this is years and years of experience with him when i look back on things that he did for me that at the time i thought were awful now i realize they were actually good for me i say look he knows When I got this cancer diagnosis, I was 69 years old. Kathy and I thought we'd feel a lot older when we got to 69. We always thought we'd feel like, hey, you know my life's over. No, no, no. So it's not like we haven't struggled. Ultimately, I'm praying for healing, and the fact that I may not get that healing is something I have to say, okay, God knoweth. In that passage from Job we are reminded that no matter what happens, we don't know, but God knoweth. So as I think about moving Pentecost, how it 
merges us into God and how it moves us into prayer and how it draws us together, I realized we don't move Pentecost. Pentecost moves us. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to witness in Jerusalem and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen.